um, Jane Murray is um, from Northumbria University. Now, you haven't got your titles on here. I'm sorry, Jane. Uh, I'm sure I'll survive. You will, yeah. yeah. Nobody dies. Okay, and she's going to talk, actually, and we had, I had a sneak preview of this conversation <laughs> yesterday. She's going to talk about whole truth, untruths and lies, an ethnographic study of communica communicative interaction between professional caregivers and people with dementia. And of course, I've seen all the slides, and I just thought, "Wow, I'm right looking forward to this." So, uh, <laughs> oh so over to you, Jane. Thank you very much. Gosh, thank you. There is a lot more slides. I'm going to flick through some of them. I simply put them on because it's such a controversial topic, and if anybody is interested, then you can have a look at them. Have a look at the notes pages. There's loads underneath, and please do email me. Um, I don't expect everybody to agree with me. I have had a really strong challenge from what a rather large charity this week going, I don't agree with your taxonomy. I went, fine. Will you talk about it? And she went, yeah, well, let's work then. And, you know, we're, we're mental health nurses, so really this is about starting a discussion, so I'm not going to present for, for the whole time. It's more about j just to air things. So despite the horrific title, basically... Um, I've been a, a mental health nurse for nearly 30 years. I've worked at the university for nearly 15, dipping in and out of practice. Um, and I'm very passionate about older persons' care. And mainly now teach um, internationally, mainly into Singapore. Um, I've done a lot of work in Malaysia and Borneo, particularly around dementia care um, or lack of dementia care. And um, Currently, I manage a programme in Shanghai for pre-registration, and I'm the director of a, a programme in Singapore for post-registration nurses. So the background to the study, um, that's basically it. I've always been interested in lie telling, but what I find really niggling is we talk about therapeutic lies, and it's a bit of a nonsense, really, because a lie is a lie, and you can't justify it by pretending it's therapeutic to make yourself feel better. Um, my supervisors, this, this is from a PhD thesis, my supervisors <coughs> are Dr Mick Hill at um, Northumbria who is more methodology and sociology but a fab, fab support and Prof Ian James from Newcastle who some of you might have heard of if anybody's in, into to, to telling lies. Um, Ian's done a lot of the previous work. But the problem with um, a lot of the previous stuff is that it's been phenomenology or grounded theory. I'm told, please don't ask me about those because I know nothing about them other than it's not what I did. Um, and the problem with them is that they all asked participants, when do you lie, what do you do, what lies do you tell, and why do you do it? So it's all perception of what we do. So it was really important for my study that it was ethnography. And then I actually went into practice and watched what was actually being done and recorded it to see if it matched previous studies. Can I say, in nowhere near did it match by any means. So I went as a, part a complete participant observer. So basically, I put my staff nurse uniform back on and I went back as a, a band five staff nurse into two ward teams. <coughs> Initially, it was going to be into three ward teams, but the third ward team had a bit of a wobble um, and decided no. Um, mainly because of the, of the ward manager but the first ward I went to after I'd been there two days she went oh you will come back won't you if you don't get to your th third ward um, so it was quite interesting and it was overt so I did quite a lot of work with the wards beforehand and with the trust preparing the ground and, and talking to gatekeepers um, and it's interesting what Jim's saying about networks because 
actually the gatekeeper for me in this instance was somebody who'd been my line manager as a grade D like 26 years ago um, but she had a really good set of values and beliefs that, that we had similar values and beliefs so it meant I did get access if I'd had to go through a different person I'm not sure I would have had the same response so you know I, I think it, it does just highlight the importance of networks it had to be overt and people said well does it have to be overt yes otherwise it becomes a lie and then it just becomes too, too complicated however the problem was trying to get it through ethics. Two and a half years later, two trips to Leeds to talk to IRAS, several meetings with the HRA, and wanting to do really unkind things to a particular lady on the panel, um, who kept saying, oh, but what happens if the, if the press get a hold of your results and they find out nurses tell lies? But we do, that's not in dispute. I'm not disputing, we tell lies, I know we tell lies. What I'm trying to find out is what lies do we tell and what's the effect? So it took a long, long time, and then there were there was big um, concerns raised about the Hawthorne effect. Now, if anybody else has done stuff around the Hawthorne effect, it's when you start reading about it, it's quite interesting, because it was done in the 1930s, and it was bosses going into an industrial section who had a lot of power that did influence. So obviously, they had a big impact. Care is so pressured at the minute, and I collected my data in 2018, so pre-COVID. And the biggest issues for me were going in, um, it made me very vulnerable as a nurse and as a, a lecturer, because I was going in to work back as a staff nurse. It wasn't actually related to any of this stuff. It was, oh my God, I'm going to have to go back and nurse. Can I still wipe a bottom with a smile? Are the students going to catch me out? What's going to happen? Am I going to be caught out here? Um, so after the first day, it became aware that the staff were just absolutely relieved to have a pair of competent hands and that I could take somebody to the toilet, I could get them up, I could bath them. One of the things I'd agreed with the trust was I wasn't going to give medication out because I felt that that was likely to be a time when I was able to collect quite a lot of data. So going back as a mental health nurse, band five, I didn't have to do the tablets. What a luxury, I had a fantastic summer. You know, it was just the best, just being a nurse again. Um, and it worked really well, and th there wasn't really an issue with the Hawthorne effect, other than towards the end of the, the data collection, some of the healthcare would say, did you get that one? I think I've just done one. Shall I tell you? I said, well, I can't record it because I didn't see it. But people became more aware that when they told lies, but it didn't actually impact um, on the data. And there was a lot of um, reflection and triangulation went on. So if I saw something, and for me, a lie is anything that's not the whole truth. So really black and white, really tunnel vision, because what I didn't want to end up with was a sliding scale that the Truth Inquiry just brought, because I don't think that's helpful for practitioners. So in total, I did about 340 hours back in practice over two sites, over three different periods. So the first site I went back to, some of the staff had changed and a lot of the patients had changed. And overall, I collected about 250 lives. Spoke to people afterwards, checked stuff out. Sometimes I had to go into the notes and just check to see, was this a lie, was it not a lie? Um, and lots and lots of reflection. Feel free to comment or chip in if people have questions. So the outcome of it, well, the first outcome is the taxonomy. And what I wanted was a, a, a classification um, of lies. And people talk about Blum's classification going back to 1994. 
It's not really a taxonomy, and it was done with this retrospective asking past participants. Um, and I came up with the six categories. Going along with, which most of us all recognise, that's going to be quite controversial in my first publication because it's arguing with the likes of Naomi Fail, who say that going along with isn't a lie, but it has to be a lie because if somebody's telling you something and you haven't got a clue what it is and you're going, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're not telling the truth because you don't know what the person said. Blatant lies, that was the biggest category, most diverse category. That threw an interesting thing up, which I'll, I'll not go into, but if people want more information, obviously I'll give them, but spontaneous lies. Some people just lie like they've got Tourette's. They don't plan them, they don't do it to reduce stress, they just do it because they're liars. And that's absolutely fine, because actually, lie telling is a really, really important part of our everyday conversation, the way I've got it categorised. It's a social lubricant, and what it did was take a lot of, and banter in particular, it takes a lot of the, the, the chit-chat that you have with patients away from that functional caregiving and it just becomes a more normal conversation. Avoidance and delaying are, are the usual things that you think about but actually cause very little distress. So I'll be back in five minutes. Most people have forgotten within 30 seconds. So it, it, avoidance and delaying. Really. None of the lies that, that I recorded, there was only one that caused minimal irritation for about 20 seconds till the gentleman forgot. But out of all of this, the key thing which, which I'm going to show you is how you say it. It's about your motivation and your genuineness. You, you know, if you go look at some of the Stephen Sabat stuff, you could say rhubarb and custard to somebody, but if you say it kindly, they'll take it on board and it'll have a positive effect. But if you're grumpy with it or you're irritated, then it has a much more negative effect. Props is the usual thing. That's the next part of my study going on to look at how props are used with people. But the two ones that are going to cause quite a bit of, uh, uh, of irritation are familiarity and banter. Familiarity, and I was laughing because Jim, you are the world's worst offender. And it's Sheffield, it's Yorkshire because um, my, my line manager's from down here. And when I was doing it, she went, make sure you put love in there. And you, you, <laughs> yes, I came off the phone, she went, my husband, who was sitting behind with sore foot, went, that man called you love three times, and I went, yeah, he's from Sheffield. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that colloquial stuff sits in familiarity, because clearly I am not Jim's love. Now, I had a real heated discussion with, with a, one of the big charities last week about this, and I say, but we have to put it somewhere, because it isn't. And in the northeast, if you use Pet and Hinny, it caused no irritation anywhere. Yet all of the literature says, and the NNC Code of Conduct says, don't use pet names. People get sick of it. It's elder speak, it's demeanour. No, it isn't. And all the research I could find around it, the researchers get irritated about elder speak, but not the patients who are receiving it. And that's certainly what I observed, and that will be a further study um, to go on and look at. And it's very much a generational thing. But older people generally, and certainly the patients that I observed, they would use it back. You can have a cup of tea, pet. Yeah, of course you can. It's a social lubricant, and it's actually really important. Um, so familiarity is going to cause a few um, ructions as I, as I go on to publish. And banter. Banter is a special category. In lots of the literature, it's really negative. It's around bullying. But it's not. Banter is just about crack. It's about talking to people. It's about sparring off people. But the important thing with banter is it's the only category where lies are told without deceit. So in a lot of the studies before mine, deceit and lies are interchangeable and they're not the same thing. If you deceive somebody, you've told a successful lie. 
But you can tell a lie without deceiving somebody because they don't need to believe it. So often with banter, so one of the common ones that came up was, see you later, alligator. There is clearly no alligators in the NHS. Well, not real ones. Um, that's a separate discussion. Um, but the patients would respond really well because I don't know how many people are from older persons care, but I work a lot on the bookcase theory where somebody's going back in their shelves and eventually they get to a point. So a lot of the banter is much further back in their lives in their 20s and 30s. It's stored in the long-term memory. So actually, the patients knew full well that it was, it was just banter, it was light-hearted. It wasn't true. A, a healthcare sat between... Um, a, a patient sat between two healthcares where the healthcare said, oh, a rose between two thorns. And the patient laughed and knew it instantly. It's something that's in their long-term memory. And to, to, to observe that, it's really important that we've got that sort of banter and that it doesn't just become functional care. And the, the only thing I added on at the end was jokes. Jokes is a bit different because a joke only comes into banter if the patient knows it's a joke. So the thing with banter is both parties have to understand that it's a lie being told. If it's a joke that's told where the patient doesn't understand it, then you're just taking the mic and it's teasing and it becomes something far less pleasant. So I ended up with these six categories and people might agree, disagree, that's fine, talk about it, I suppose is the key. I don't know how I'm doing for time, I can't see a clock. I'm all right. So, the, if anybody wants the rest of the PowerPoint, I've got examples. You've still got to do Yeah, I've got the important bit to do, oh, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the important bit. So, out of all of this, when I was looking through to see what, the, the, what else was coming through, this is the really key bit. Whatever we do, we have to be genuine about it, and it's got to be to me the needs of the patient. Now in previous studies everybody always said, oh I do it to meet the needs of the patient. No you don't. You get to the end of a 12 hour shift and there's 18 patients with dementia and the ward is banging and your head is banging and somebody comes up, can I go home, can I go home, can I go on the door? You're just going to go, I haven't got a key. You've clearly got a key and the, the, the one line <coughs> that was caught out with the patient when I've just seen you come through it and the staff just went, ugh, but then luckily the gentleman forgot. But Sometimes we get into, and generally we're in ineffective <coughs> or limited impact because it's about disengagement. We've just had enough, we're tired. And that's not about calling people out. It's about saying, you know, just be a bit more aware when you're tired of how you're going to say something. One of the real um, other ones around this is around medication administration. And one of the things it showed up was we actually give meds covertly without following policy all the time. People going up to a patient with dementia, I've brought you a little drink, drop a whiskey, drink your milk, it's clearly an antipsychotic. Um, and the difficulty with that is, and the reason it doesn't work is, because it's not to meet the needs of the patient, it's because I'm on a two hour schedule, I've got 18 people to get the meds down, I've got two hours to do it and I need you to do this really quickly. And I'd like you to do it, but I'm not really doing it with you in mind, I'm doing it with me in mind. So there was a lot of issues around meds that we used the, the, the lie on to talk about. And I suppose ultimately what I'm hoping is 
that we're going to trial this um, regionally. I was going to just trial it with one um, mental health team, with a behavioural support team, but they've asked if we can do it regionally and get them to use the taxonomy to either reflect on planned lies or for the team to bring lies that have worked or haven't worked and just start to think about it. Um, interestingly, the use of props, false dogs, false cats and things, people, the, the carers that were using those were very genuine about it and props never ever didn't work. It was always really, really positive, which is why my next um, bit will go there. I suppose the key messages from are be genuine, make sure you validate the recipient's emotions and do it for the right reasons. And that's really hard when you're tired, but and just an opinion, I think lying works, I think we should do it, I think we should promote it. Truth always has to be the starting point, but if it's going to cause distress, we should not be doing it. It's not fair. And that's because my truth is no more important than the truth of a patient with dementia. And if that truth to them, if that's their world and their truth, if we start chipping away at that, we're going to chip away at their personhood. Remembering that we're going back to personhood being um, Kit Wood's original stance around maintaining relationships. And often telling lies will support personhood. So it's really challenging some of the original Kit Wood stuff around malignant social psychology but very much subscribing to the, 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 um, the, the paradigm of personhood. And ultimately what I'm hoping to do is that to challenge the NMC to change the code of conduct and the GMC so that we've got a clause on confidentiality that we should all, similar to the clause on confidentiality, that yes, truth is always a starting point and we should always maintain truth where possible, but when truth is likely to cause distress or um, maleficence, then we should be supported as nurses to, for beneficence and to tell a lie. There you go. Any questions? I'll definitely silence. Are you talking about acceptable lies and not acceptable lies in some ways? Acceptable lies are saying, oh, by the way, you're not going out, please store anyway. So I would say I haven't got a key so that you pacify yourself. Or I'm not acceptable lying that um, you must do what I say kind of thing. How is the second example? I know it's very difficult. I, I, it, to me, a lie is a lie. Doesn't matter. And it's not it, it, it's not so much what you say, it's how you say it and why you say it that's key. And if you tell a lie to get somebody to conform to what you want to do, and you might have to, you know, if you're getting somebody dressed that's really difficult, and you're working in a care home, and there's 30 people waiting to get up, and there's only five, four or five of you on, you've got to get people washed and dressed. You know, that's, that, that's the reality of what, what, what some staff have to face. So if you have to put your, no, 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 no. You know, if people then move into, oh, can you put your shoes on because we're going to the park? and then they take them to breakfast, not the park. If that means to me that that person is dressed in a manner that they previously would have wanted, I wouldn't have an issue with telling that lie. I think it's very individual, and I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but for me, if it supports that person to be able to get through their day without becoming distressed and without having a battle or lorazepam, then I'd rather tell the lie. 
thanks for your presentation. Uh, you mentioned about uh, focusing on the needs of the patient and then the care. I, I was just wondering about is there any information about how you explore um, issues like documentation, procedures, um, training, and then attendance, things like that. Uh, whether you were able to explore about was there any lies related to a staff or a patient? How did you uh, do your particular your data collection? It, it was always staff telling lies to a patient with advanced dementia who was unlikely to be able to retain information for any period of time due to the point in their journey. But also CNTW are a really good example of a trust that's quite forward thinking because Proppy and James is based in, in Newcastle and has been an advocate of lie telling for a lot of years. So as part of the admission procedure for older people at CNTW with dementia, families will be asked about lie telling. Do you support it? Is it an issue? Do you, you know, where do you sit with it? How do you feel if we tell them lies? And the interesting thing is that most families will say, lie away, not an issue. We don't have a problem with it. And I was really intrigued when I first started planning the study. I got told by the first IRS team to go and talk to families because they're going to have a wobbler organise all these meetings with families and one would turn up, two would turn up and you go, you don't care. Tell them what you like. Just don't get them upset. That was the key thing. Get them through the day and don't get them upset. We tell them lies all the time. But this CNTW is actually part of the admissions procedure. So, it's, so lies are documented, they're talked about, they're also reflected on and it's CNTW that have volunteered to do um, to, to test these out but have asked to do it on as a, as a trust-wide thing rather than just with one team. Um, so I think, you know, I, I don't know what, I, I don't have experience of other trusts um, and lie telling, but certainly it's something that's talked about and it's not, it doesn't carry the stigma with CNTW that it does perhaps in other areas. What did the truth report say then? So it's really interesting because I was thinking, hmm, this is, hmm, what do I do here? So I linked in Toby Williamson who wrote it when, can I talk to you because I'm about to publish something that's going to really argue with what you're saying and Toby's been fabulous and so is a guy called Anthony Tuckett that Toby cited a lot who's in Australia and what the truth reports the truth report basically says yes you can tell lies if you must but truth is always the starting point which is right but they categorise their lies in a sliding scale and that's where it becomes problematic because what's a white lie to me might be a blatant lie to you and it's about hang on a minute what, is, it a is it the truth? If it's not the truth, then it is a lie. And we've got to get away from talking fiblets, white lies, and all these other sort of soft, softer words, because it's about us. You know, we talk about being non-judgmental as mental health nurses all the time, but we make massive judgments about the word lie, and we've got to kind of destigmatize it and, uh, and take the emotion out of it. Lying's a really useful tool. So I was thinking about covert meds, but there's, it's in it's in the code. Yeah, you know, around covert meds. Is there anything in the code about covert language then, no. in that sense? You know, there's some sort of level but this of is the first, th this is because it was ethnography. This is the first time it's been recorded, and the problem is, um, and what I did was I went back to the trust and said, look, just before I submit my thesis, can I just talk to you about this? Just because if anybody does read it and pick it up, this might come back. And the trusts were really good and we're, we're potentially looking at another study around this specifically. Because what people are doing is they think that they're doing it under best interests, but you're not, you're doing it under best intention. 
So what we've got to be really careful of is if you say to somebody, have a whiskey, so one girl said, have a whiskey, oh, that tastes horrible. Oh, does it? You know, the person clearly knew it didn't taste right, but actually they, did, they, they haven't followed the Mental Capacity Act and there's no care plan for it. So what people need to do is, if that's being observed on wards, people need to call each other out in a very gentle way and go, you know what, we need to care plan that. We need to do a capacity assessment. We need to clarify that person doesn't have capacity, and then we need to care plan and get families in and, and make sure that so it's then you're following the covert so that then you're following the covert yeah. meds policy. Yeah. But because it hadn't really been picked, I think there's an awareness it happens, but it's the first time it's been documented as a, as a part of formal research. Okay. And tell us about ethnography then, because oh, no. <laughs> I think people in the room don't know much about ethnography. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a really interesting one because when when it was first suggested, it w obviously the method was suggested to me because as an early career researcher I had no idea, um, and I thought yeah that appeals to me. It's quite it's quite a daunting thing to go in into to think how am I going to do it, and when people were bring up you know, to go and observe and join the community, but what I say to people is it throws up so much new knowledge by doing that instead of that, you know some of the people I'm supervising now, I do worry that their studies would have brought so much more if they hadn't shied away from ethnography. Go and be part of it. Go back to it. You know, If you're a professional, go back to your roots. Go back and see what's happening. Because we all have different perceptions of an event. We all have this retrospective falsification of what we're doing. So a lot of the other methods, if you want to say what is happening in practice, for me, you've got to see it. You know, And I think it brings a lot to it. It is hard. And I had a brilliant, brilliant supervision team who were dead supportive of it, and very much on the sociology side. But you, it take, ethnography takes a lot of groundwork to get accepted, but actually it's really good in terms of nursing because you can dip into shifts. We're all part of that community anyway, so you get accepted much more readily back into your community. And you, you fall, I fell back into being a nurse, and I used to have to think, you're here to research, you're here to research. And, and talk about that quite a bit, the, the, the conflict between researcher and nurse, because actually I just wanted to be a nurse, I just want to go sit in that day room and just sit and talk to people, because that was nice, you know, take something in the back. But ethnography is a really good tool, for, as far as I'm concerned, for nursing, because you see what's actually going back on at ground level, and it's changed massively. You know, I, I got so much more out of it than, than just my data. And were you making process notes? As you, uh, notes, so when you heard something, you... Yeah. You so I had basically, I'd been suggested, could you use a, a dictaphone? I thought, oh, God, no, because then I'll have to transcribe it and then it gets really hard, doesn't it? So I just had a notepad for each ward, wrote it down. Sometimes I wrote it down immediately afterwards. Sometimes I wrote it um, contemporaneously. There's a couple of, of bigger ones that kind of, uh, uh, they were anticipated that people were going to get into different conversations, so I went and I just sat somewhere discreetly. It didn't cause any disturbance on the ward because the patient needs to fill in forms in, so you could just sit quietly somewhere and do that. The other thing that was really important that a lot of the lie on came from was every day, after every shift, I uh, did a formal reflection. Using GIDS, it's dead basic, but did a reflection about how I felt about the research and the lies I collected but also about the ward and what had gone on in the ward. And that's thrown a couple of other things that have prompted other uh, things up about the ward milieu. So we talk a lot about staff skill mix and having to have the right skill mix. 
complete not a waste of time for people with dementia. Have people that like each other. If people like each other, they'll make a good job of the shift. If they hate each other, they will be absolute dicks. That was kind of, I spent the whole morning and there was two tribes. There was Mrs. Busybody who were like, I've been a healthcare assistant for 45 years and we've got to have them showered by eight o'clock and then I'm going to do the trolley and then I'm going to and have to be busy. Then we had Joe, who'd been a minor. And he was maybe a bit over, no, he's hugely overweight. And he would move quite slowly and he'd get somebody up and then he'd need a rest. And it was, so we'd go and have a cup of tea. So whoever he'd got up, he'd go and have a cup of tea, which absolutely drove Gladys nuts. So they didn't speak to each other, but they both had their own tribes. So we ended up with really functional care and not a single live talent for the whole shift till lunchtime. So I went to the ward manager and went, I have no idea what's going on here but can I stay, because I want to see what happens when we change the staff. Then this really bubbly healthcare came on, who was a bank assistant, who had friends in both camps. The two main leaders disappeared, and then I got 10 lives in the next hour, as the band has started. Okay, so just ask you a bit, that's quite interesting ethnographically, in yeah. terms of the different populations and the different mix of personalities. Is that some of what you were recording in your notes? Yes, yeah. and that came through much more on the... It wasn't something I'd anticipated I would collect, but that's why if you do an ethnography, I think it's really important to, to do those structured reflections on the night time. Because when I started to think about why did it happen, it was really, really important. And I think it's something I would quite like to go on and have a look at again because. I've got another question as well in relation to that. Did you interview any of these people as I was observed them? Not, not in the sense I think that you're asking. Yeah. It was just, just to clarify the lines. And I think that would be something I would want to go on and do if, if I was able to go on and study that further. It's quite interesting, isn't it? How, I'm just thinking ethnographically how, it, how what you observe and you filter yeah. kind of sits with their filter. And do they feel it? Of that culture of disability, of that care in the context of people's lives. It would just be an interesting kind of take yeah. point, wouldn't it? And, and, and the key thing is if staff don't particularly get on, they don't banter, they don't have that social crack. Yeah. And that's where you lose it. They, they tend to go, it becomes very, have you got Bob up? Have you got Mary up? I'm, sh I, I'm, doing, I, I'm in bathroom three, da, 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 and you stop. Whereas actually in the afternoon, when everybody sat down and everybody got on, you go, the club, are you, were you at the club on Friday night? You were a right state. And then say the patient, I should have seen the state of him on Friday night. And then it just became a much more social and, 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 and happier environment for the patients because then they were able to in interject because. A lot of the staff in the, in, in the hospital I was working at lived very locally and the patients were very local, so they knew where everybody drank, where everybody did the shopping and things, so it became quite difficult. Well, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you've told you about the storm, <laughs> 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 Yeah, that's all about interrogating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to ask you about that. Did you feed you with a question? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I haven't heard it like this, but I had a chance to feed chicken. <laughs> No, no. It, 
I think because I they knew that it, if I didn't think it was the whole truth, it would be a lie. And I'd done a lot of groundwork, but also I'd worked with a lot of these staff beforehand. So nearly all the staff know me either as a nurse or as a um, or, or as a lecturer at the university. That did bring some issues for newly qualified staff. Come on, come on. I'm bringing you come because like you've got really high standards, and I'm not sure what I. Uh, but it was fine. Um, and from my point of view, the one of the students who I, I ended up having to, to, to model a, a session with, she went, I always wondered if you could walk the walk. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and things like that made it quite hard, but... but yeah. Well, that's no. a good question, but I can... No, I was going to go back. Oh, sorry, right. I was just through you. Not, sorry. I was just telling you about... Uh, in, in your past observations, was there any situation where it was uh, COVID, and then you were dealing with patients, or maybe for staff, where you they get engaged in activities. What about situations where you were not present and other things could have happened about the flu or lies, and then they didn't observe it? How did you take care of things like that? I and then the other aspect is that uh, there are some care settings where they have CCTV camera. Was there any situation where you had to fall, where maybe there's a CCTV camera, whether you were able to explore anything about staff, maybe interaction, where there was anything like telling of lies or truth or anything, was there anything like that? No, it was an NHS facility, so there's no covert, there's no cameras, and um, there, there were all NHS local trust um, wards. And, and no, because I think the thing with ethnography is you've got to see it yourself. Um, and, and that was really key. So sometimes people would come and say, oh, I've just told the biggest thing. And then they would tell me. And I got, Br yeah, brilliant, did it work? And then we would go back, kind of, I didn't have the lie on then, but we'd go back to the lie why did you tell it? How do you feel about it? And we would reflect on it. But I wouldn't record it because I hadn't seen it. And it was important for me to have seen it. Um, but what it did do was it very much heightened people's awareness of actually we do tell quite a lot of lies and it, it brought it much to the fore and it brought the discussion forward and I think that's kind of the important thing that we've got to be a bit more aware of when we're doing it and what the effect is and that's why when I started to add so I, would, I had my notebook and I would just put one lie per page and then when I sat down to do my reflections I would add bits about context and build it and build it and build it so that the original lies actually got quite story around it, who was there, what was happening, what the ward was like, had they just had meds, had something happened. So we ended up with all this context built around it. And I think it, 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 it is, it's interesting when you start to write it up because Poetney and James who supervise many much cleverer people than me, when I sent, sent it to him, because I spat my dummy out a bit, so I haven't sent it to him for about six months, and I sent it when I was done. I didn't tell him, I just submitted it. Um, but Mick had seen it. Anyway, this is a very interesting style of writing, and I just thought, oh God. I really like it. So, my discussion chapters actually, my findings in the discussion are together, and they're about 40,000 words, but all the way through you've got big reflective boxes where I've thought, oh, that's triggered something. Or, because sometimes it, you, know, you, you see something, a, another nurse doing something, and you think, it's not like that. And sometimes I really struggled with, especially around medication or where people were being a bit a bit snappy and you can't, because somebody does it different to me doesn't mean to say they're wrong, but sometimes people do something and there would be a better way to do it. 
and that can make you feel really uncomfortable because you don't want to be going, oi, that was rubbish, because it would, do, it would have shattered everything, it was there to observe, but it was also really important for me to reflect on sometimes why was I uncomfortable with some of the care that I saw given, because it, it was in by no means bad care, but sometimes it really did elicit feelings of discomfort in me because I wasn't comfortable with it. Oh, I've just got one. <laughs> your lie. Yes. And you record your lies. Yes. And my lies I recorded right through. And I think well, it's just the only lie we lie all the time, don't we? It doesn't particularly <laughs> have to be on a walk, does it? No. <laughs> Santa Claus. I talk about Santa Claus, false yeah, eyelashes, right, yeah, yeah. makeup, Facebook. I tell children they've got lovely shoes on. Yeah. Great. Take them off. You thank, you for <laughs> thank you for that present. It's no, I mean, it, it, I absolutely do, because for me, the person with dementia is the priority, not me. Yeah. And I don't feel that. And I think that, uh, it was funny, I was having this conversation with somebody else yesterday. Sometimes I think that the longer you get in your career, the more confident you are, and the less you feel you have to have that power and, and uh, assert your, your efficacy or whatever. So I'm quite comfortable with it, and I don't mind the patients having power. I'm a high risk taker in practice because quality of life to me is always going to override risk taking. You know, and I, I, you know, Jim and I were talking yesterday. I work a lot into Asia, where people are strapped to the seats because the families will sue. So restraint vests in Singapore, everybody is tied to the chair. Everybody wears the same clothes. In China, on the wards for people with dementia, they all have to wear striped pajamas so that if they escape, they can spot them out the great seats in the middle of Shanghai. You know, it, it, as, as you progress in your career, I think you start to take higher risk, and I'm very comfortable with lying, but I could understand how a more junior, somebody who's just qualified might have more confidence. Outstanding, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>